So, did this Romeo have a name? Nick Totopoulos. Jesus. Is that why you dumped him? No. Uh, how long did you guys go out for, anyway? Nearly four years. <gasps> Girl, I'm surprised he didn't ask you to marry him. Well, that's the problem. He did. Ugh, tell me that's not another parade. I don't think that's a parade. Please stand by. What the hell is that? Hi, welcome to To the 90s and Beyond. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since the middle of the 1990s, starting off in 1996 with my first film review published online, and I kept up mostly ever since. You can read all of my written work at my website, Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net, as I usually remind you at the beginning of each podcast. You can check out the other podcast that I do covering films of the 1980s as well. It's called Around the World in 80s Movies, and you can find the link at that website, quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into a film that pretty much got maligned at the time, back in 1998 when it was released. Although, I guess there are kids that saw it back in the day that tend to like it now that they're adults, but... Whether it holds up for me, well, that remains to be seen. I was not a child when I saw Godzilla from 1998, so keep that in mind when you get to listen to my review. Godzilla is a PG-13 rated film. It does have science fiction, monster action, and violence. The runtime is two hours and 19 minutes. Matthew Broderick, Maria Patillo are the main stars. Hank Azaria, Jean Renault, Harry Shearer, and Kevin Dunn are also in the film. The director is Roland Emmerich, who also co-wrote the screenplay, along with Dean Devlin. So, just a crash course on Godzilla films. Godzilla really originated in Japan during the 1950s, and primarily is seen as an allegory for the deadly destruction of nuclear weapons. Embodied in this creature, created by massive radiation imbued with cataclysmic powers, the production house for the original films... Toho called the monster Gojira, which is a mix of the words Gorira and Kujira, which were Japanese for gorilla and whale, respectively. Toho's Gojira films typically featured uh, a man inside of a rubber monster suit would wreak havoc on a small-scale city on a movie set, and that primarily was the, uh, the destruction that you would see in the film, done very inexpensively by modern standards. In 1956, Joseph E. Levine imported and repackaged Godzilla for an American audience, translating its Japanese title to Godzilla, which is what a lot of the world, including the United States, calls that character today. Flash forward to 1992, and Hollywood studios were actively seeking hot properties with franchise potential. Back then, there was a former talent agent named Carrie Woods. He was At that time, he was assistant to Sony Pictures president Peter Goober, and he was trying to change his uh, career path somewhat, and he wanted to break in as a film producer. So Goober took him, put him under the wing of uh, another producer called Rob Freed, who had just earned an Oscar for producing the live-action short film called Session Man. And 
Woods and Freed worked together. They began producing smaller projects, including the heartwarming sports flick called Rudy. They also produced the hip Mike Myers comedy called So I Married an Axe Murderer. Sometime later, they were pursuing the rights to Mr. Magoo from this licensing guru named Henry G. Saperstein as a potential live-action vehicle for Mike Myers. Now, in their negotiations for Mr. Magoo, Saperstein did mention he dropped that he also controlled the American merchandising rights to Godzilla, and he had been trying for some time, unsuccessfully, to negotiate a deal between Toho and a major studio in Hollywood for some time for a remake. Ishiro Honda, the director of the original 1954 film, he had just passed away, and that removed a significant obstacle toward Soho signing a deal because there were some who were dead set against Hollywood having complete control over Godzilla. But like Batman back in 1989, Godzilla happened to be an internationally known and quite beloved character. And with Jurassic Park expected to dominate 1993's summer box office, there happened to be at that time a resurgence in dinosaur-related properties that really were erupting at video stores, including higher sales and higher rentals for Godzilla. Unfortunately, the producers despite having all of this wind at their backs, still met resistance from executives at Columbia Pictures upon hearing that Toho would not allow licensing for more than one movie at a time, and they also placed some restrictions on merchandising rights. TriStar, sister company, also passed, claiming that Godzilla was a campy relic to today's audiences whose last American effort, Godzilla 1985, had bombed miserably. Carrie Wood's wife, suggested that he take it to his boss, Peter Goober. But Woods feared that he would be admonished for bugging Goober with something that was beneath his station. He was the uh, head of Sony Entertainment at the time. This was definitely not something in his purview. But the window of opportunity for this potential gold mine was soon to close. So Woods said he's going to take the chance. He flew to Florida where Goober was scheduled to deliver a speech and luckily, after giving his pitch, Goober was ecstatic. He saw Godzilla as an international pop culture brand with major profit potential and sequel potential, a tentpole franchise, if they did it right. So Goober set up the deal with Sony at TriStar over the protestations from TriStar's president, Mike Medavoy. Goober did all of the negotiating. He did the finances, the international distribution rights, except for Japan, which remained Toho's domain. In exchange for the rights, Toho would receive $1 million plus a significant profit share, including veto power over Godzilla's design as detailed in their voluminous booklet of Godzilla's do's and don'ts if they're going to make this film. Toho also acquired rights to Sony's version of Godzilla if the agreement lapsed. TriStar footed the $400,000 upfront for the deal and cleared a schedule for a release they hoped around Christmas of 1993, shortly after the run of Jurassic Park. Now, Toho wanted the anti-nuclear theme preserved. They didn't want a silly, spoofy take for American audiences. They preferred it be a little bit more like Jurassic Park, a fun romp with serious threats. Woods and Freed searched for a screenwriter who would treat Godzilla with a fresh approach for new audiences. After weeks of combing through sample scripts and meeting with a variety of writers, including Clive Barker, who was ultimately deemed by Sony execs as having too dark a take, Predators Jim and John Thomas also gave a pitch. 
they hired a team known by Woods when he was working as a talent agent named Terry Rossio and Ted Elliott. Their prior efforts included the Fred Savage vehicle called Little Monsters, as well as work on Disney's Aladdin. Elliot and Rossio's preconceptions about Godzilla were of schlock. They thought it was unworthy of adapting except maybe as a parody, but they needed the work. They accepted the offer to write the screenplay. They watched Toho's movies for ways that they might entertain modern audiences. They highlighted what seemed to work to make Godzilla seem awesome in those movies, and they would scrap all of the things that they thought made him seem pretty goofy to Americans. Godzilla, they felt, was most awesome when he is subdued by a deadlier menace before becoming Earth's savior in this battle royale across landscapes and cityscapes. They determined that King Ghidorah, the three-headed dragon character in some of the Toho films, would make for the best nemesis, but Toho excluded that character from their contract because this was a popular secondary character. They wanted double to add the rights if they wanted it to be in the Godzilla film. The writers decided, well... Maybe that's a little too much. They should create an original monster with similar powers instead. So they set to work. The Rossio and Elliot script eventually, over several drafts, finds a scientist who is killed in the beginning of the film while investigating a nuclear accident. And that accident unleashes a dinosaur-like monster that had been preserved in red-black amniotic fluid. Also, there happens to be an author on dinosaur-slash-dragon folklore who dubs the creature that they find there, Godzilla, after a Japanese legend, because a Japanese fisherman spots the creature first sometime later. The author is recruited by a top-secret government project led by the scientist's widow to hunt Godzilla in what the screenwriters called Moby Dick if aliens Ellen Ripley were Ahab. She's in charge of getting revenge on Godzilla for killing her husband. Conventional weapons do prove ineffective against Godzilla, but the government agents managed to find a way to neutralize the monster with residual amniotic fluid from the site of origin, and then they transport it to New York headquarters for study. An alien crashes down somewhere else in rural United States. In one iteration, it's in Kentucky. In another later revision, it was in Utah. This alien can fuse along with animals that it encounters, forming its ability to fly from bats. It gets its ferocity from mountain lions, as well as its bulky stamina from cows. The media dubs this new alien creature the griffin because of its mix of all of these different animals in its appearance and in its qualities. The top-secret government team soon learns that the griffin is in essence, a doomsday monster that had been created by an alien race that had been seeking to conquer the universe, and it sends its monsters out to dominate the worlds they encounter. Godzilla was created by an ancient but technologically advanced humanoid race. Sensing that this was going to occur on Earth, they used dinosaur genes to create a new monster to try to stop these doomsday monsters. Godzilla escapes when it senses the griffin, but it's weakened by the amniotic fluid still that is connected to its body. The showdown eventually occurs in Manhattan, including the World Trade Center, and then after humans find a way to remove the amniotic fluid source from Godzilla, he's restored to full strength, soon demolishing the griffin in the climax, and then humanity decides they should just leave Godzilla alone to have it around to protect Earth from any other future foes that may arise from outer space, thus setting up 
potential sequels, of course. Now, the primary list of directors that Sony was seeking here was uh, included obvious ones like James Cameron, also Tim Burton. David Fincher was under consideration, as well as Robert Zemeckis and Ridley Scott. Roland Emmerich also happened to be an early contender. Most of these directors turned down the offer outright. They were not interested in doing it. Cameron was only interested in producing. There were some talks that did extend with Tim Burton because Burton was a Godzilla fan, but they stalled because ultimately uh, TriStar's execs felt that his ideas were a little too skewed toward humor and self-mockery. They moved next toward a second tier of directors that they thought could handle it. Joe Dante, Sam Raimi, Barry Sonnenfeld, Joe Johnston, even the Coen brothers were thrown out there by... uh, by Woods and Freed as a potential kind of offbeat choice, but Sony nixed that outright because they felt that the Coen brothers had not a very high commercial track record to be doing something so big. So their search finally ended when rabid Godzilla fan named Jan de Bont, he was hot off of the movie Speed, he signed on, and they set a new target date to redevelop their script for Christmas of 1994 with ideas that de Bont had. DeBont foresaw the Godzilla film that he wanted to do as fun and funny, very similar to the Japanese films, but embracing of the goofiness a little bit more, but still grounded in a a sort of realism in its visuals. Industrial Light and Magic were sought to try to develop those visuals, but they declined because they felt that the visual effects that would be required under DeBont's vision were a little too much for them to handle at the time. They were too busy with other projects to handle such a tall order. They needed somebody much more dedicated. So Sony's in-house effects team was available, Imageworks, but DeBont preferred somebody with a better track record, so he pursued the costlier Stan Winston-run digital domain. Set construction started. It portrayed a Japanese fishing village that began in Oregon, in 1994, and location scouting soon took place in other areas of the United States. It looked like it was a go. Toho was content with the way things were running. They liked the bond. They liked what he brought to the table. But Sony started to grow concerned because they felt Americans really did not connect with Godzilla enough to justify DeBont's huge budget unless he were somehow fully Americanized, removing a lot of the Japanese origins that DeBont wanted to continue to embrace. They wanted to make Godzilla resemble more of a dinosaur than a monster, and that, they felt, could help it ride Jurassic Park's coattails a lot more. In addition to DeBont's $4 million salary, as well as a points deal, he wanted 500 effects shots, about nine times the amount that were used in Jurassic Park, and that was estimated to push the budget around 130 to $150 million, and they still had not cast any A-list stars. DeBont felt that big stars weren't necessary. He could make money by just putting good actors in. Godzilla, he felt, was the main star. That was the big attraction. You didn't need anybody else to get butts in seats. Informal negotiations began with Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt for the leads, a couple of actors that DeBont highly regarded. Sony, though, were financially suffering. They had recent box office fiascos, including Last Action Hero and Geronimo. They pressured DeBont heavily, try to reduce the cost under $100 million if he could. So basically chop out about a third of what he was going for. They also suggested maybe removing the Griffin altogether, 
reducing Godzilla's appearance, you know, maybe just have him talked about more so than shown. And they also decided, well, they didn't really have sequel rights. So if this film actually took off, maybe they should introduce a sidekick character for Godzilla that maybe younger kids could be entertained by that could also grow up and continue in a spin-off series that did not carry sequel licensing requirements from Toho. DeBont was gracious. He tried to accommodate some of these demands, but eventually it grew to be too much. They asked too much out of him to the point where he felt that they were really going to cripple this film. And so he refused to cooperate anymore with major alterations after that. Soon production just came to a complete halt. And then nobody at Sony really wanted to make any decisions because they feared that they were going to be fired with all of the financial problems that were going on within the company. Woods and Freed eventually saw the writing on the wall. They started moving on to new projects to work on while DeBont and his intended cast and crew, Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt, as well as a lot of the people that were working behind the scenes on Godzilla, they jumped ship to work on Warner Brothers' Twister instead. So without any pushback from DeBont now, Sony decided to go ahead with a lot of its plans to try to retool the script that they had to make it cheaper, Script doctor Donald McPherson was brought in to revise the Rossio Elliott screenplay. They wanted to darken and make it much more serious, the jokey tone that was employed for DeBont's take. They wanted to reduce the characters. They would amalgamate some of the, uh, the characters into just a few. And they wanted to reduce, of course, those expensive effects sequences and redundant action sequences. Godzilla, they felt, should not be shown throughout most of the film. They wanted to build a lot of mystique, they wanted to keep those costs low, and they wanted his attacks to move to dry land instead of the, a lot of the attacks that were done in water because the water effects were generally considered very expensive at the time. After it was done, Sony shopped the McPherson script around to several other directors, including David Fincher yet again. Fincher was interested. He wanted to make the setting into Chicago where there wasn't a lot of water. However, Sony, because of the production problems that plagued Fincher during Alien 3, they felt that maybe he was not the one who was going to deliver this film the way that they wanted. So they continued to look for another director while McPherson continued to make further revisions to reduce the cost. Then, in 1996, Sony decided to take a $3.2 billion write-off. They cleared their American division of all of these high-salary executives, including Peter Goober. Goober moved on to a new venture called Mandalay Pictures, which also was basically funded by Sony. He wanted to move Godzilla to Mandalay, but Sony felt that that was way too risky for a first effort. They wanted him to concentrate on much more smaller projects. Counterintuitively, though, Sony Japan did press for a big project to try to turn around its fortune in America. So they decided to pitch to Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin, whose Independence Day was anticipated to become a massive blockbuster success. He and Devlin turned it down again because Devlin felt that Americans really associated Godzilla with dopey things, including in 1992, the Nike commercial that featured Charles Barkley playing one-on-one -on -one basketball against Godzilla. That was what immediately came to mind, he felt, to a lot of Americans. Emmerich associated Godzilla, at least in his mind, with cinematic turkeys that he had seen when he was a kid going to the matinee. A lot of these Godzilla pictures were sandwiched between you know, ridiculous Hercules flicks, as well as bad spaghetti westerns. He felt no way today's audiences were going to take a new Godzilla film seriously. 
And besides, they already had a follow-up to Independence Day. They had in mind an adventure film with shades of the right stuff, a film where a meteor would strike Earth. It was called Ground Zero. Now, despite four refusals already, Sony was tenacious to get Emmerich on board, and soon they made an offer that Emmerich could not refuse. A three-picture deal with Sony, giving the duo 20% of the first dollar grosses. And suddenly, the concept of a monster destroying a city did have a certain appeal. I mean, the current script was likely a no-go, but Emmerich did admit that it did offer them some ideas of how they could make a respectable Godzilla film in the end. TriStar asked Rossio and Elliot to revise the script to Everick and Devlin's satisfaction, but the new team, they decided that they were going to write their own script on spec, take it or leave it in the end. Sony approved. This was a low-risk offer to them, so they had the ability to turn it completely down if it was bad. Meanwhile, Devlin joined Emmerich at his Puerta Vallarta, Mexico home, and they started to go to work. They rewatched the original 1954 film on Laserdisc, finding it surprisingly less campy than they had anticipated. They also started watching several of the Godzilla sequels, though they eventually stopped because they felt that it, they grew too silly and redundant. So they were going to go with the original concept that they had in mind. They did love, at least among the movies that they saw, Godzilla's look, especially when Godzilla was shot in rain or at night, something that they felt that they would emphasize in their feature. They moved on to other monster properties that were similar to Godzilla for additional story ideas, including 1933's King Kong, as well as The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, which had a bigger influence on the plot of their version of Godzilla. They wanted to replace Godzilla's Michelin Man-like appearance, the kind of lumbering, clumsy one with one that they felt was going to be swift. It was going to be smart, evasive, agile, and it would burrow and leap like a real lizard. They wanted Godzilla to behave much more like, say, an iguana than an anthropomorphized heroic monster of unknown origin. Godzilla, he, they felt, should not destroy cities without any kind of rationale or breathe radioactive blasts in a way that defied any kind of scientific reason. It should have an animal's logic, and it should have a survival instinct. It wouldn't view a city as a place just to destroy, but maybe if it were a nest for hatching babies, maybe that would be a true threat to humanity. These babies would also grow up to be other you know, big lizards that could destroy the world potentially if they were to all hatch. They would cap costs. They would use their own effects team, employing models and puppets interspersed with CG. They faxed Toho's Godzilla design details to Patrick Totopoulos. Totopoulos had designed the aliens for Emmerich and Devlin on Stargate and Independence Day, but he never received the Toho Godzilla design specifications. So Totopoulos proceeded with his own design of what he felt a fast Godzilla might look like. He also gave a, a prominent chin to give his lizard the appearance of nobility that was inspired by the jawline of Shere Khan from Disney's Jungle Book. Now, Meanwhile, Devlin and Emmerich, they were working out their initial script. Over the course of the next three weeks, they named their main character Nico, Nick Totopoulos, in honor of Patrick. Emmerich and Devlin have a tradition of, of naming characters with their own little in-jokes. Emmerich wanted to cast Matthew Broderick. Broderick was somebody that Emmerich really wanted to get into Stargate in particular, but he was doing Broadway at the time, so they ended up getting James Spader 
for that project. But this time, they decided they were going to ask first. They wanted to know if Broderick wanted to take the part. Broderick conceded. He said yes. So they decided to write the part of Nick Tatopoulos for Broderick. They brought the origin of Godzilla a little bit more back in line with Toho, with its nuclear origins. A series of nuclear explosions in the South Pacific create this titanic lizard monster that's born pregnant and eventually makes its way and migrates to Manhattan, where it starts destroying the city, laying over 200 eggs. Humanity soon finds itself facing extinction unless this biologist, Nick Tatopoulos, and a couple of reporters and the French Secret Service and the military can stop the existence of all of these new lizards before they start overrunning the Earth. That's the basic concept for the script, but of course they had to convince not only the folks at TriStar and Sony, but also Toho with their newly designed creature. So they knew that Patrick Tatopoulos' two-foot-tall prototype maquette of Godzilla, as well as his, his more hand-drawn plans, they were about to reveal them to Toho's executives. They knew that they violated nearly every design requirement that Toho had sent them that Patrick Tatopoulos didn't know about. But at the same time, what little enthusiasm that Emmerich had for Godzilla had also begun to dissipate after this conceptual phase. And as suspected, Toho's brass audibly gasped upon first sight of the Tatopoulos design. Emmerich stood his ground. He half hoped maybe Toho would just cancel it and he could go back to making his meteor movie, the one that he really wanted to make. He stood his ground. He insisted Godzilla had to look like this. He had to be quick. He had to be lean. He had to have a color scheme for camouflage among buildings in New York. Take it or leave it. If you don't like it, you have to find another director. Toho needed a day to consider whether they were going to say yes or no they had made a lot of money. They were, had been the distributors for Emmerich's Independence Day in Japan. And there really was no hotter creative team that they knew that would be interested in Hollywood. So they resolved that Emmerich's Godzilla maintained, in the end, the right spirit for Godzilla. And on a certain level, it was so divergent from their own version of Godzilla that maybe it was not going to interfere with the Japanese film series as they were producing their own films. So they gave their blessing for the American version of Godzilla, even though Emmerich did feel somewhat mixed about the pitch's success in the end. Although Devlin and Emmerich did want a serious Godzilla, at least the character of Godzilla, they did commit to putting the comic relief emphasis, not on Godzilla, but the human characters of the film. The actors, they were hired on without having to do any screen tests. They, this was fast-tracked. Renee Zellweger, uh, among others, were ones they had considered for the Audrey role. There were a handful of others that they had met with, but Maria Patillo came in and pretty much won them over through her charm and her grace and her acting abilities. The French component of their story was because France did most of the testing they felt near the Fiji Islands, and they, they liked Jean Renault best among prominent French actors, so they pursued him for the role, and luckily they got him. Three voice actors from TV's The Simpsons do appear because Devlin was a major fan of The Simpsons at the time. Harry Shearer playing this douchey news anchor, Hank Azaria as a cameraman nicknamed Animal, and there's also a, a small cameo part for Nancy Cartwright, the voice of Bart Simpson. The characters of Mayor Ebert and his partner Gene, they were placed in the movie because film critics Siskel and Ebert gave Stargate and Independence Day two thumbs down on their show, even though audiences loved those, 
So they questioned the pompousness of Cisco and Ebert and decided to uh, place a dig on them. And, and Cisco and Ebert, by the way, ultimately gave Godzilla, as you can imagine, two thumbs down as well. The month-long location shoot in New York did prove very difficult. They could only shoot on the streets in late evenings between 8 o'clock at night and 6 in the morning primarily. They had to record basically on completely empty streets for Godzilla and his destruction. They were going to add it all digitally in post-production. There were actors out there on the streets. They all had to rely on their imagination for reactions as to what Godzilla was doing out there because there was no Godzilla out there. There were some practical effects for Godzilla. There were some seven-foot-tall animatronic Godzilla suits with remote-control heads that were used in certain scenes to show maybe a small part of Godzilla, but they really had not come up with the final look, especially the head, until late in production, basically in post-production. And the team continued to struggle with how Godzilla would move because a lot of the movements as they were developing Godzilla appeared a little too human, and they wanted to get away from that. And that was until Andy Jones came in. He was freed from his work on James Cameron's Titanic, and so he came in and assisted the animalistic animation process so that Godzilla would appear like a lizard, at least when it was in its CG form. Now, even with their effects film experience, the challenge for special effects was daunting. Independence Day was a big effects film, but in the end, it really only had about 15 minutes of pure effects shots within the 2.5-hour movie. Godzilla required a lot more than that because its main character itself was a visual effect. Sony did not want a rush job here. They wanted to have faith in the film they offered. They wanted to postpone the Memorial Day release that they had intended for Godzilla, but Emmerich and Devlin turned it down. They hoped to get ahead of the summer movie pack. They were intent to get this movie out into the theaters come what may, because they felt that th that was absolutely important. But they still had to deliver, of course, on that date. Woods and Freed, they did retain a producer credit on this, even though they did almost nothing at this point. This was pretty much the Devlin and Emmerich show. Elliot and Rossio did get story credit because there were some elements that did remain from their original script enough to kind of give them that. But none of this talent that had cultivated Godzilla up to this point had participated at all in the Emmerich and Devlin endeavor. Woods claims that the executive team from TriStar that did take over was the most incompetent that he had ever witnessed in his career, and Freed said that they took this jewel and really ground it into dust by the end. They have no understanding of the Godzilla property. They did not see any possibilities within it. They just saw it as, as a thing to market, as a thing to make toys out of. They gave Emmerich and Devlin the keys to this potential major franchise without any question. Just because they lucked out with Independence Day, they felt that they knew what they were going to do with Godzilla, even though they themselves did not care for the character of Godzilla. Now, despite a $50 million ad campaign, the marketing, by all accounts, was botched. Promotional footage showed parts of Godzilla's body, but never his head, and the it wasn't settled what Godzilla really wasn't going to look like, as I mentioned, until the end of post-production. Licensees themselves could not see Godzilla's design early to make the toys and make all of the merchandise. And so a lot of that was not available until the film was finally released. And reportedly, there were a variety of different Godzilla designs that were sent to toy manufacturers with some ideas of what Godzilla might look like. But if any of them leaked that look to the public, Sony 
immediately cut ties with the offending companies. And that really hurt the bottom line because nearly half of merchandise sales for films like this typically come before the movie's release date. All of the hype usually generates that, and few were allowed for Godzilla, and that wasted what they felt was a golden opportunity to do what they wanted to do, which was make a lot of money. Now, because the effects were being worked on in post-production 24-7 pretty much to try to make that May 18th premiere, there was not ample time for test screenings prior to the film's release. Sony executives and the theater owners finally did screen it, and they proclaimed that this was likely going to be a major dud. John Calley, the new head of Sony Pictures, reportedly asked for a host of alterations, including Maria Patillo's voice getting redubbed by somebody maybe a little less annoying, but all of this was just too late. They just had enough time to produce enough films to get into 7,000 plus theaters. They didn't have time to go back and make any changes. So Sony decided they needed to get ahead of what they felt were going to be bad reviews. They had a new marketing strategy and it was really shifted toward a pre-release ad blitz to get people in theaters. They would open on as many theaters as possible. This made it a record-setting 7,363 theaters. That was roughly a quarter of all screens available in North America at the time. Sony also decided to try to take a bigger cut of those opening weeks. They negotiated with theater owners. They wanted a higher percentage than customary for the first four weeks of Godzilla's release. Theater owners were initially reluctant, but they ended up agreeing because they were so hyped that Godzilla was going to be the event film of the summer. Sony kept telling them when the film finally was released, critical drubbing did occur as expected, but butts were in seats, at least for the first week. And that was enough for Sony to pay Toho $5 million to option sequel rights for five years. But Unfortunately, even though Godzilla topped the box office for its first two weeks of release, this giant lizard had very small legs and it tumbled out of the top 10 after five weeks. And that really upset those theater owners who gave such a big cut for the first four weeks to Sony, expecting a huge long run for the summer, compounding the plummeting audience at the time. No other big movies were released to try to pick up the slack because no other studios, sensing Godzilla was going to be a huge movie, they didn't want to put their movie in competition with Godzilla. So there was a vacuum of lucrative movies. So theaters were sitting sometimes half empty or less all over the United States. It took in ultimately a disappointing $136 million in the United States. It did perform better internationally. It added another $242 million. It ensured that the endeavor was a financial success, even though a lot of people do consider Godzilla a flop because it didn't take in as much money as they had anticipated. It did make its money back. It probably made about $100 million in profits anyway. Still, it wasn't quite enough. The momentum just didn't seem to be there for a sequel. Fingers did point in every direction as to why Godzilla did not perform better at the box office. Emmerich felt that the marketing was to blame the whole way that they did size does matter kind of uh, in comparison to Jurassic Park that, well, Jurassic Park has its dinosaurs, but Godzilla is much larger. So they would completely emphasize that Godzilla's size is what makes it something worth coming to the theater to see. It seemed to be kind of tongue in cheek in terms of trying to promote the film, but when it's on every billboard and poster, it soon begins to lose all meaning. And 
He felt that Sony viewed Godzilla much more like a project than a movie. Devlin felt that casting without screen tests was the issue. They really didn't have a lot of time to prep. Broderick felt himself was miscast, even though they wrote the role for him. And many did not enjoy Maria Patillo in particular. She took the Golden Raspberry Award, the Razzie for Worst Actress of 1998. They also got an award for Worst Remake or Sequel at the Razzies, uh, sharing it with Psycho and the Avengers. But it didn't win its nominations for Worst Picture, Worst Director, or Worst Screenplay, even though it was nominated for those. The only bright side altogether, they felt, was its soundtrack performed much better than they anticipated. It went platinum, in fact. Most of the songs were not even in the film. It was one of those soundtracks that were inspired by the movie. Others, especially Godzilla fans, felt that reducing the character of Godzilla to just being a giant animal took away many of Godzilla's special traits, things that they really enjoyed of those old Godzilla films over the years. There were a lot of attempts at explanations that were rooted in incomprehensible science, a lot of those fans called it Godzilla in name only, a gyno, G-I-N-O. Were this film not called Godzilla, maybe just having a giant dinosaur running amok in New York City? Maybe that would be a passable effects feature for today's audiences. But just the name Godzilla just carries a higher expectation, and it ultimately disappointed significantly those fans who came in to see a Godzilla movie. Godzilla in those old films had a soul, had a purpose, it should be more than just this overgrown lizard that randomly destroys things out of some genetic impulse. Critics, obviously, as I alluded to, they were merciless against Godzilla. They cited that Godzilla failed to live up to the entertainment value of even those cheapy Japanese releases. Devlin, as the co-screenwriter, ultimately took responsibility for the failings of Godzilla himself. He complimented Emmerich for doing a really good job at directing what he felt in the end was just a really bad, rushed script. Astounding special effects, those are the show here. You know, convincing bone-crunching sound, the video files wet dream, as they say. Obviously, you know, when you come to effects films, those films lose their appeal over time because there are bigger and better effects that still come out from Hollywood. So by looking at it today, they seem a little antiquated. You don't watch Godzilla necessarily for the effects today because you could see better effects just on television shows that they're making today. So what are the real problems? There are just many problems to Godzilla. One big thing is whether Godzilla is destroying New York or killing seamen like Jaws or the baby lizards, the offspring, toward the end, very much like the velociraptors in Jurassic Park. They're all going out after the heroes on the ground, alien style, you're not going to feel any sense of fear. And that's a, a real big vacuum in this film. There's no fear at all as to what's going on. And that's really the main problem of the cheesy comedic tone that permeates Godzilla. All of these attempts at comic relief just make it feel like the makers of this film just don't care about their subject at all in, in terms of making it menacing. They really are going for laughs a lot of the time, but laughs that aren't always there. Nothing really horrific, you feel, is ever going to happen because that jokey tone is never going to be unsettled by having anybody killed who doesn't just truly deserve it. The 140-minute runtime is also too long. It's padded with at least an hour of gratuitous effect shots. Godzilla running around between buildings doing a whole lot of nothing. It doesn't really make a lot of sense, and it's not that appealing because Godzilla's face 
was not shown through most of it because they did, they had not come up with the actual look until very late into the effects process. Matthew Broderick, even though this film was written for him, at least his role, he's still all wrong. He he knew it at the time. It's annoying to observe this dweeby biologist standing around telling military personnel what to do, remove manhole covers and the like. His character is barely really necessary, and he serves a lot more as an annoyance instead of a hero to really root on. And if $100 million was spent here on special effects, I feel they can easily afford $3 million for a top-notch writer to come in and deliver a good enough script to make it worthwhile. This film, Devlin and Emmerich, really made it feel like it was written by a 10-year-old boy for others his age. And that seemed to be the point, because in the marketing materials itself, if you were to read the marketing materials, it says the demographic target of Godzilla was boys 4 to 11 years old. But, unfortunately, most children's animated features were of interest to them much more than this, and adults pretty much were not into this film at all. Now, we don't have any rooting interest in Godzilla, and that's another big problem. Whether it's friend or foe, it doesn't really matter. It's just there. It's causing all kinds of problems within the city, but we don't have any feeling toward it. It's merely looking to survive. It builds a nest to have its babies. Humans want to wipe, of course, Godzilla out and all its offspring because, you know, humanity, I guess, hangs in the balance, but Godzilla was created by humans because of the rampant nuclear testing, so we're supposed to root for ourselves as humans to wipe out this byproduct of our own hubris with science. We learn nothing about the danger of tinkering with Mother Nature here, or of tinkering with nuclear power. We just decide, well, we're just going to deal with the byproducts and obliterate it with additional firepower. And the reason why I'm so frustrated is because there have been blockbusters especially in the 1980s, that were entertaining, but they also strove to fill audiences with, in particular, a sense of awe, a sense of wonder, a sense of imagination. But somehow, by this point in the 1990s, studios just decided that the goal was toward dumbing down blockbusters. Even a brain-dead person could follow what was going on in films like Godzilla. No sense in eliminating anybody from it, anyone from the ages of three to 103 should be able to understand what goes on in Godzilla, but unfortunately, special effects alone are just not enough to fill another generation with any kind of sense of that imagination. So you can dress up a pile of dog crap however you like, you can sprinkle glitter on it, you can add a ribbon, but it's still just a prettier pile of dog crap in the end, and that is essentially what Godzilla ends up being. It upset Godzilla fans, obviously. The character here is the nemesis of humanity, it also dies at the end, so there's really not a lot there for fans. Japanese Godzilla aficionados from all over the world have disowned it. It really lacks that requisite spirit of the franchise, despite what Toho said at the time of the pitch. Tellingly, Sony themselves shut down the user forum on the film's official website because it had become overwhelmingly derisive against themselves. They felt that this was not promoting the film. It was actually getting other people to hate the film before they even saw it. Sequel possibility is still in the film because it comes from the last-minute hatching of one of the... Uh, offspring, one of the eggs that was not found at the time, was not destroyed. TriStar did spin off this film somewhat into a, an animated TV show called Godzilla the Series in later on in 1998. 
There was a sequel that was discussed because it did make money. Tab Murphy, in fact, was tapped halfway through post-production by Amrick and Devlin to write a follow-up script that introduced a half dozen other monsters on Monster Island after this jaunt in the Australian outback with the baby Godzilla that Nick Tatopoulos saves and then releases into the wild where he eventually grows to hatch younger versions of himself just like Godzilla was in this film. Audrey would be mostly written out of the sequel because they wanted a new love interest that would form with this Diane Fossey type in Australia. The nemesis monster that Murphy had concocted was going to be like a cross between this winged termite and a wasp. And we come to learn that the Godzilla hatchling got blamed for abducting humans. It was actually this nemesis that was abducting humans to feed her young. However, this sequel was never to be. Devlin and Emmerich found themselves in a financial dispute in the end with Sony. They abandoned the sequel. They did not want to continue working in this relationship. Sony did continue to try to exercise their sequel option. In fact, they worked with Toho on a reboot of its Godzilla franchise with a film called Godzilla 2000 in 1999. And TriStar distributed it in the United States Primarily as a palate cleanser after the 1998 film, they wanted people to see a a real, so-called real Godzilla film, at least one that was done originally, so that way when they came up with the sequel, they could divert it into a different direction. But Sony, in the end, could never get it quite together. They let the rights to Godzilla revert back to Toho in 2003, and Toho, with the rights back, with tongue-in-cheek, they introduced the American Godzilla into their own film series. It was not called Godzilla there. It was just called Zilla because there was, in their estimation, nothing godly about it. So into their 2004 film called Godzilla Final Wars, the Japanese Godzilla bests Zilla, the American version, easily. There were attempts to turn the Rossio and Elliot script, the original one, into a comic book undertaken by Todd Tennant. It wasn't completed until 2015, And then uh, they tried to publish it, but they weren't able to get it successfully published. And it it ultimately became available for free online. It's called Godzilla 94. So check that out. Probably a lot more entertaining than sitting through this film. So as far as what I grade Godzilla, well, at best, I can give it two stars. I mean, it has good special effects for its time. It's certainly watchable to a certain degree, but it's just really annoying. A lot of the the characters you ultimately will hate, even though you might like some of the actors. And it just was a wrong-headed Godzilla film all around. It just did not make any kind of sense. There wasn't a lot of entertainment value, so that's why I can never give it much more than two stars. If you have your own thoughts on Godzilla that you want to impart, whether you love Godzilla or whether you hate it, and maybe two stars is either too generous or not generous enough, you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Now, as far as what I'm going to be doing next, well, there were a number of Godzilla films that were made by Toho, actually, during the 1990s. I think about five they released in the 1990s, including one I mentioned, Godzilla 2000. I should probably continue it with those, but there were also films of the 1980s, a couple of Godzilla films that were made, including Godzilla 1985, that I have not covered yet. So I want to get to those before I get to the ones of the 90s at some point. So we're going to shelve Godzilla, at least for the time being, at least those Japanese versions of Godzilla. So as far as what I'm going to do next, I'm going to go off of another Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin film that was a little bit better, more highly regarded. I have a couple of 
them to choose from, I guess, in the 1990s. But let's go back to the earlier one of the two, Stargate from 1994. And that's what I will cover on the next episode of To the 90s and Beyond. So I hope you're anticipating that. Until then, thank you, everyone, for listening and joining me as we continue to travel to the 90s and beyond. (laughs) 